This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome to the inaugural edition of my new podcast, Cultural Debris. I'm Alan Cornett. Thank you for taking the time to listen. I really do appreciate it. The title Cultural Debris comes from a 1958 essay by Russell Kirk in which he discusses wandering around the Scottish backcountry with a friend. They would often visit secondhand bookshops and buy old leather books for pocket change. His friend remarked that they were collecting cultural debris like men in a rowboat finding treasures amongst the flotsam of a great wreck. I commend the essay, which I will link in the show notes and you can find on the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal website. That spirit guides this podcast. I will be discussing books and poems, maybe some gardening. Honestly, things that interest me that I think might interest you too. But I will also talk to guests who I believe have interesting things to share. I'll talk about this episode's guest in just a moment. One of the ongoing topics of conversation in the podcast will be books. I like books, and I figure you probably do too. I probably have too many of them, and like you, I probably buy too many more of them. I have more books than shelves, and sadly, add them faster than I can read them. Arriving most recently, I've got a little stack of books beside of me, Arriving most recently is a book by a French writer who's actually American named Julian Green. It's a book called Paris. It's a little short volume. This edition happens to be bilingual. It's French on one side and English on the other. And the good news about that is that I'll be able to read it twice as fast because the French side's not going to help me too much. But it helps to recall trips to Paris during a time when hardly anybody can go anywhere. I've been reading some other books, too. I have Letters from a Stoic by Seneca that I've been reading through all along. This is the Penguin Classics edition that was translated by Robin Campbell. And a book that has been helpful to me lately is by Father Jacques Philippe called Searching for and Maintaining Peace. It's a little devotional book, but it's a good devotional book. A lot of devotional books I find frustrating. This one is thoughtful without requiring too much expertise in reading it. So there's a little stack of books there. I've got some other things I'm reading too, but we'll touch on these all along and also, of course, talk about books with whatever guest that I'm speaking with. This first episode of Cultural Debris is being released on Russell Kirk's birthday, October 19th. He would have been 102 years old today. Because October is his birth month and Halloween was his favorite holiday, I've declared October as Russell Kirk Month, a way to raise awareness of Dr. Kirk's thoughts and his writing. Those certainly include his ghost stories, of course. People often ask for good places to start reading Dr. Kirk and two excellent books to pick up. One is an anthology of Dr. Kirk's ghost stories called Ancestral Shadows, and we'll just talk about this in the podcast, but it's sadly out of print right now. But you can track down secondhand copies. I would also point interested readers to The Essential Russell Kirk, which is a selection of essays edited by George Panichus. That can be found pretty readily as well. Dr. Kirk wrote a lot, and there's a lot to sift through, but those are some good on-ramps for you. I had the opportunity to work as an assistant for Russell Kirk, and I remember the Halloween that I spent at his home in Piety Hill in Macosta, Michigan. I remember that very well. Dr. Kirk loved Halloween, and he loved trick-or-treating. Everything was was decorated up. We, We did fake cobwebs outside, which Dr. Kirk thought should just remain year-round. Dr. Kirk's home is an imposing Gothic structure of Dr. Kirk's own design and looks spooky even when the sun is out. At night on Halloween, there were many trick-or-treaters who would freeze in their tracks as they approached the house. One brave soul who made it inside for candy tentatively asked a costume Dr. Kirk. He was dressed as a wizard. The child asked Dr. Kirk 
Do you live here? Dr. Kirk answered very seriously. When we were alive, we did. You get a little bit of insight into Dr. Kirk's wonderful sense of humor, which I guessed Brad Berzer and I talk about in this episode. To keep the Russell Kirk theme going, my guest is Dr. Bradley Berzer, the biographer of Russell Kirk. Dr. Berzer is the Russell Amos Kirk professor at Hillsdale College and a prolific writer. We will talk about not only Dr. Kirk, but several of his book projects, one that's out, some that are coming, and he's working on a lot of books right now, and it's going to be interesting when he gets those out. Before we turn to the interview, I want to read a poem because that's something that I'm going to try to feature in the podcast as I can. This is a poem called Autumn by T.E. Holm. A touch of cold in the autumn night, I walked abroad and saw the ruddy moon lean over a hedge like a red-faced farmer. I did not stop to speak, but nodded, and round about were the wistful stars with white faces like town children. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, and you can also follow me on Twitter at Cultural Debris. Also, if you could leave a five-star rating or a quick review, it would really help others find the podcast. I appreciate you joining in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Now join me as I talk with Bradley Berzer, professor at Hillsdale College. Dr. Bradley Berzer, welcome to Cultural Debris. Alan, thanks so much for having me. I'm honored. It's great to hear your voice. Ah, well, I, I I appreciate you taking the time. You you are in an undisclosed location in a uh, in a a major prairie state. Will not. Uh... That is true. That is very true. I'm I'm close to where I grew up. Actually, I'm very close. In fact, very near family at the moment. So. Oh, okay. Well, you 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 told me when you you were traveling and where you were going, and I didn't know if you were in if you were in witness protection or. Or what? <laughs> no, uh... not at all. It's actually it's a, a a program for Hillsdale College, but it just ended up being in Kansas City. Oh, so okay. first, we had one one event on Tuesday in Milwaukee, and then tomorrow we have an event, uh, which is Thursday. I don't know when you're going to uh, announce this. We're recording on a Wednesday, but uh, on a Thursday we're doing it in Kansas City. Uh, so. Very good. Well, I actually lived in Kansas City for four years, so I'm uh, I'm I really like Kansas City. Oh, that's cool. I'm in Overland Park at the moment. So okay, well, you're on the Kansas side. I was on the Missouri side. I lived in Lee's Summit. So oh, sure, I know exactly where that is. That's great. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great place. I nice always community. enjoyed always enjoyed going to Overland Park because it's always uh, always nice and uh, and luxurious over there. <laughs> that's true. That, <laughs> the Kansas side is very nice, but but Lee's Summit is excellent. So that's uh, great. yeah, it was a great place. We enjoyed it. Uh, so you hold the Russell Amos Kirk Chair of American Studies at Hillsdale College. So uh, tell me a little bit about the the uh, the Kirk Chair. Sure. So uh, Russell Kirk actually held the first Kirk Chair, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Uh, and then after him, it was held by Dan Sundahl and then by Michael Jordan. And uh, so I'm actually the first to hold it as a title. Before that, uh, they held it as, I should say it's a, a title, but it, they held it more as an administrative position. And when I inherited the chair back in 09, it became actually an endowed chair um, for a lot of reasons, a lot of logistic reasons. But yeah, it's, it's meant to honor Dr. Kirk. And certainly I have done my best to try and, and honor him in all kinds of different ways, sometimes through conversations on Twitter with you, uh, sometimes <laughs> in, in what I'm writing. But yeah, absolutely. It, it's uh, one of the highest accolades of my life has been to hold that chair. So that has really meant a great deal to me. And uh, I felt that there are certain duties that go along with it. Uh, well, and of course, you're the, the you're the biographer of, of Dr. Kirk as well, so that that fits uh, fits well with your uh, with your position. Yeah, and partly inspired by getting the chair, uh, I had wanted to do a biography for a long time of Kirk, but a lot of things kind of came together around 2009 and 2010, right at the same time I got the chair that allowed that to happen. So it's really, in many ways, it's coincidence, but there's definitely inspiration there. Well, and of course, this. 
podcast is going to be Kirkian in perspective, not always in topic, but uh, I, I feel like we'll we'll get around to Dr. Well, it's, a, it's a great title. Yeah. It's an extremely Kirkian title. Well, right. I, of course, ripped ripped off the title directly from Dr. Kirk. As you should. Uh, and, <laughs> so I'm I'm uh, I figured Dr. Kirk could could rip off uh, uh, Edmund Burke and so forth. So I can I can do yes. uh, I can turn yes. around and, yes, and, and, and that yeah, right. that's right. Absolutely. If you're gonna if you're gonna take right, always take from the best. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> always take from the best. It makes you it makes you look that much uh, that much better. So uh, let me let's talk a little bit about Dr. Kirk, and then you've got some other projects, uh, both completed and also in process, that I want to I want to touch on with sure. you. So this this is October, which I have unilaterally declared as Russell Kirk Month, and um, that's that is something that I I intend to to ingrain in people so that uh, so that we're starting this uh, starting a tradition. I'm getting the ball rolling slowly, but uh, this is one of the ways I kind of want to do that, uh, just to get to kind of raise the consciousness uh, in people about Dr. Kirk and get people reading Dr. Kirk and considering his ideas, because I feel like uh, certainly our society currently and our politics, although this is not a political podcast, sure. our politics can definitely use that leavening of thought. Um, so, so when was the first time you were introduced to Dr. Kirk's uh, writings and his thought? Well, I had, so I, I'm 53, Alan, and I graduated high school in 86. And I had heard of him when I was in high school because of the debate program that was on. Um, we, we tended to be very conservative and libertarian. So we read a lot of Milton Friedman and we read uh, Hazlitt, and we read some Hayek, and we read some Kirk. So there was a lot that I got in high school, but then it really wasn't for me. Uh, I was much more libertarian than conservative at the during my high school years, and it wasn't really until college. Uh, in fact, it was my senior year of college, right when the wall was coming down, that I read The Conservative Mind, which was the first complete book that I'd read by Russell Kirk. And uh, I was a senior in college. There was a lot of things going on in the world as, that, as I was reading that. And it really just hit me very hard. And I realized what a profound historian he was, what a profound thinker he was. So he's really been a kind of constant companion for me since about 1989. Now you're, a, you're just a couple of years older than me. I read The Conservative Mind when I was a senior in college as well. Oh, I yeah, I, I didn't have. Uh, you didn't have the wall coming down, though. Uh, I well, no, I, well, it, it came down a little a little earlier than that, but the wall was already down by the time I, I read Doctor Kirk. But I, I didn't have that exposure in high school. I didn't really know about Doctor Kirk until oh, probably nine nineteen ninety or so. Uh, okay, and and then started uh, started collecting various things of his, and then read the. I guess I probably read. Um, I may have read Randolph uh, first. I can't. I can't wow. remember the order there. But when I was yeah. a senior, I read both Randolph uh, of Roanoke and The Conservative Mind. And what a great uh, introduction! Oh yeah, and then of course um, I had the opportunity to go up and, and interview him for my senior thesis, and that was when I. Uh, that's when I first met him, and and uh, obviously that had that had a profound. Uh, impact on me. So, so you were, um, you had the conservative mind kind of injected into your brain then. And, and that had, that had uh, uh, sort of brought, did that start bringing you away from the libertarian mindset a little bit? Yeah, I'm still extremely sympathetic to libertarianism. Uh, I've never gone with the whole Kirk route in terms of thinking of it as a, a, a kind of chirping sectary. Um, <laughs> I, I've been much more open to it, and especially the kind of Tom Woods variety of libertarianism. But uh, there's no doubt that I was, in high school at least, I was much more of a kind of materialist. And I, I was an atheist at the time. Uh, so, uh, you know, as much as a teenager can be an atheist, I was an atheist. And uh, had really rejected the Catholicism of my parents and my grandparents, and was probably searching. I, th I think my libertarianism in high school was very much a kind of substitute religion, and that definitely faded away in college. And especially as I, I became, 
hesitate to say religious, but as I, I came back to the Catholic church during college, that fell away. So what do you think that Dr. Kirk brings that is unique? What was unique to his uh, contribution and his thinking? You know, for me, and this is this is part of the question you just asked, Alan, and of course, this is very personal in the way that it, it develops for each one of us. But for me, Kirk really opened up the world beyond economics. So I had been so interested in economics and laws of supply and demand. And I had read all the Austrian stuff and the, the Chicago stuff. I won't say all, but I had read a lot. And I was very taken with that. And I remember when I, I first started reading The Conservative Mind, and he's so clear that there's so much beyond just the economic. That was really, for me, that was very eye-opening. And I love the idea of culture, whether it was high or low. And you and I share some of the same low culture interests. <laughs> um, True. Um, you know, and I, I thought, wow, this is, I would never have thought that I could look at these things, whether it was a, a great work of, of cinema or a, a book in a way that wasn't just purely kind of law of supply and demand. And that opened up a lot for me. And to, to be able to think culturally, that is that has never left me. But it was also, Alan and I, you and I also share this friendship with this person, but I also read Cleves Whitney in, around 1991 mm -hmm and read his, his articles on cultural debris, read his articles that he wrote on decadence at the time for the Intercollegiate Review, and that, that shaped me profoundly as well. That, that great kind of Kirkian emphasis on understanding what the culture is really did matter to me. What do you think, uh, I, I get asked this a lot uh, about where to start reading Kirk. Of course, we, the conservative mind is is his great, uh, I guess, magnum right. opus. But where where do you think people who are new to Kirk, where where should where's a good on ramp for them? I actually I love the idea that someone might read Randolph of Roanoke first. Uh, I didn't come to that until much later, and that was you know I'd read most of Kirk's other books before I'd gotten to that one, and that is such a beautiful history and biography. And Kirk is so open at the beginning where he says, oh, I, I feel I must descend to the shades and speak to these people and talk to the dead and honor them. I, I just love the way he writes about that. And I think if someone, and of course that book is in print, uh, I think if someone wanted to understand Kirk, that would be a great place to start because it's such a great story. I would also recommend, I, I think one of Kirk's kind of forgotten books, but, but one of his best books, Prospects for Conservatives, uh, I think that's probably outside of his fiction, I think that's his most beautiful book in terms of trying to understand the soul of humanity and figure out who we are. But I would never dissuade someone from starting with the fiction. Uh, I love his fiction as well. I wouldn't start with Lord of the Hollow Dark. Uh, that would be too too much. But I think if someone wanted to start with any of his short stories, I think that would be, be excellent. Well, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the fiction. Uh, so hold on to that thought because sure. we're going to, we're going to get there. Uh, when you started, when you started the biography, what, I guess, sort of what process did you use to sort of to, to dive into Kirk and what was writing that, what was writing that like? I, it, it was excellent. I loved writing that biography. That was one of those things I woke up every day and couldn't wait to work on it. And uh, you know, my the press, University of Kentucky Press, uh, just down the street from where I'm recording. The street, this. <laughs> um, you know, then Steve Wren was the director, and he was so gracious, and he allowed me to write as much as I wanted. Uh, there were no limits. He once I got the proposal in and it was accepted, he gave me a completely free hand to write it in any way I saw fit. Uh, I I decided from the very beginning that I wanted to write it with the conservative mind as a model. So I wanted Kirk to be the conservative mind, but I wanted all the people who influenced him to have a say in the book. So people like Babbitt and Moore and T.S. Eliot and Robert Nisbet, all of these various people who, Ray Bradbury, all of the ones that influenced him, I wanted their voices as well. And so I did very intentionally model it after the conservative mind. And I had a great time with that. I, for me, it was not only intellectually challenging, 
but it was artistically very rewarding. And I just never got tired of that, Alan. I probably could have kept writing. And I knew at some point I had to, I had to finish. And when I originally started the book, I had only wanted to go up to 1964. I, I was not interested in getting into Kirk's marriage. I, I really didn't want to deal with his kids. I didn't want to deal with Annette, not for any other reason than I didn't want to invade their privacy. And I thought if I take a biography of Kirk and I take it up to the present day or up to 94 when he passed away, uh, I would be getting into too many personal issues. But Annette was just as gracious as Steve Wren was and the daughters were as well. So I, I was really able to do a lot. And I focused on Kirk's charity, which you, know, you met Kirk, I never did. Um, so you've got a firsthand experience of that, of the kind of time he gave, of uh, the resources he gave. Yeah, that, I mean, <laughs> you want to talk about, it, it's funny, Alan, I mean, I just to, to try and put this in, in just terms that still, move me when I think about it in every way. I mean, I, I think I was utterly shocked by Kirk's saintliness. Uh, I mean, he could be wickedly funny. He could be bad tempered. But I think in the end, when you look at how many people he helped and how he tried to bring people together, that was the most shocking thing for me to actually encounter a soul like that, not a mind like that. I'd met a lot of minds like that. I mean, Hayek, had that kind of mind. Uh, others that I've studied have that kind of mind. But to have that generous soul and that that spirit of charity, that was incredible. Um, and that that probably, you know, I started off the book with it being very intellectual, and I ended it with it being very spiritual because that's what I found in Kirk that so delighted and moved me, and, and moves me even talking about it right now. He really was, and the, the Kirks as as a family were were extraordinarily hospitable. And when I was, uh, I mentioned interviewing him uh, when I was a senior at uh, University of Kentucky. I uh, I did a my senior thesis on Kirk and Buckley and their their early years and starting uh, the conservative movement and in the post war conservative movement. And so I wrote both of them to ask, "Can I come interview you?" And both of them graciously said yes. And wow. but it, it was it was extraordinary the the difference in in the way they invited me. So Buckley says, "Here's my secretary. Here's a list of books you need to have read before you come come up here." He said, "He said, here's my secretary's phone number. Call her, and you can set up a time to interview me." That is correct. So I, so I did, you know, of course I did, did all of that as, as instructed because I was afraid, I was afraid not to. And, uh, Dr. Kirk wrote and sent this, it was a big thick envelope where he sent some various enclosures and he said, uh, it would, we would be delighted to have you, uh, call my wife Annette and, and, uh, you can come up for the weekend and stay with wow. us for a few days. Wow. And of course they had, I was, I was literally a nobody to them. They had no idea who I was. I right. was just a, a, a random uh, college student writing them uh, out of the blue, wanting an interview for, you know, a, a an insignificant uh, project from, from the grand scheme of things. But they were, uh, you know, wanted, wanted me to come up and spend, multiple nights uh and uh and and be taken care of and that so i was i was really struck at the time by by just you know by the complete generosity and hospitality of that absolutely and and imagine he did that with everybody he met <laughs> right right I, that's right i mean there were always people coming through of course i i was uh i was able to to come the next year to oh, uh, serve as an assistant but there were always people coming and going and spending, you know, spending uh, the night. And of course, they ran multiple, or uh, just as there are now, multiple homes on the right. on the campus up there. And there was always somebody in the various houses, the and in the main house. <laughs> so he he really was uh, someone of of generous heart, and as you said, also wickedly funny. He he was absolutely hilarious. I mean, just this very dry sense of humor and you didn't really see it coming uh but he would just always come in with a little dry quip 
um, and uh, and then and then start laughing himself in his sort of sort of raspy laugh. Portal way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's so great, Alan. Yeah, again, I never encountered that personally. I've only read about it, only heard people tell me stories, but that story is a is a common one. Uh, just that generosity and that humor and that ability to relate to people, which is, I mean, considering how shy he was, is also astounding in and of itself. That, yes, that's right. He, he was a very reserved person and uh, was was not gregarious although with people he was comfortable with he could he would uh, sort of dominate the the conversation and and entertain and and so forth so like at dinner and and mm-hmm. uh, especially if there was company he would he would step up and and uh, sort of hold court as it were but uh, just day to day he he was not someone who was uh, particularly chatty necessarily. Right. right. Um, so I was going to ask you what, what was the, the most surprising thing that you found or the thing that, that surprised you most about Kirk, but apparently that this sort of that spiritual side of him. Do you think that that was present prior to his marriage and then his, and his, also his conversion to Catholicism or, or, did those events uh, bring that out? Did they cause that? What What do you think the the impact of that was? You know, it, it's funny, Alan, and I. I always I worry about how to answer this, only because I, I would never want to offend Annette. But I don't think Kirk's Catholicism, his formal conversion, changed him that much. Um, and if anything, I think it made him a little less interesting. He the kinds of big questions that he asked in the 50s and the early 60s, he just stopped asking uh, around 1964. And he became very comfortable with the answers of the Catholic Church. And he had already reached many of them because he had always been very, very Augustinian. Even in his pagan days, he had been extremely Augustinian. So I don't think it changed a lot. Um, But I do think that Annette honed it. Um, She clearly is an extremely charitable person as well. But I found in his letters all through the the 1950s, especially uh, before he was famous and and after he was famous, not much changed. He if somebody wanted his time or wanted his ideas or uh, once he started making money, if they needed money, he never, ever hesitated to help anyone that I could find at all uh, to the point of almost recklessness. He was so willing to kind of to give his money out. Uh, I just and I don't think it was an issue for him. I think it was one of those things. Uh, you have an extra coat on your back, you give it to somebody, and you have extra money, you give it to somebody. Uh, it's just you know, in the same way you've got two peanut butter sandwiches, and one somebody needs it, you hand it to him. Um, and he loved peanut butter, as you probably know. Uh, <laughs> that was uh, I think that was just his. I think growing up in poverty. I think helped that a lot. I think growing up with the family that he had, he just really did have that. He possessed that generosity of spirit that was always there. So I don't want to suggest that his Catholicism didn't mean anything. I think it meant a great deal, but it meant a great deal only at an extremely personal level for him. I think for the most part, his ideas actually, as I said, became a little less interesting and I think that's because he wasn't searching as he had been prior to that. Well, where do you think, where do you think, I mean, you mentioned the, the poverty that, that he grew up in, but his, his, right. And it, his, his family uh, was not particularly intellectually inclined. They were not uh, particularly religious. Right. So what, what created Russell Kirk? Because he's, uh, you, you were talking earlier about his, the introduction to his, uh, to his biography of, of Randolph, which of course was his master's thesis. Right. That's, that's not the sort of writing you typically see from somebody in their master's thesis. I mean, that's, that's a, a unique way of expressing yourself. Absolutely. A unique unique vision of the world. So, how does Russell Kirk come out of that? Yeah, I I think he is shaped. He's shaped 
uh, I, I was going to say infinitely, but of course it couldn't be infinitely, but he was shaped, I think, very pointedly by his mother, whom he absolutely adored. And he was shaped by his mother's father. I mean, these were the, for him growing up, these were the two most important figures. And he loved the fact that his mother was so warm to him, even though he had a very hard time returning that warmth. And he loved the fact that his mother's father was so dignified. And they weren't intellectual in the sense that Russell Kirk would, would become later, but there's no doubt that there was a kind of element of genius in the family. Annette had shown me, and I, I'm not going to get all the details right about this, Alan, so I apologize for this. But next time you're at Macosta, you should ask her. Uh, there was a family history written by, and I'm not sure if it was his great-grandfather. Uh, I think it might have been, and I assume it was on his mother's side. But there was a family history written in the 1870s and 1880s that was then privately published at the time. And Annette has a copy of it and she showed it to me. And I was struck by the writing because the writing style was very similar to Dr. Kirk's. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And, you know, this was someone that, you know, how did he get that? I mean, this is, you know, it, I don't think he consciously imitated it. I think it was probably part of the speech patterns in the family. I think the way right. that they approach things, their kind of weird spiritualisms, you know, they, right. even though they weren't intellectual, they were deeply curious about things. And that, uh, you know, that the, the spiritualism gives me the creeps. But I think it also, that idea of talking to the dead and, and having uh, the ability to speak to the infinite and to understand that and to have the seances and to write on the, the crazy chalkboards, I, that, you know, that has to be mind boggling for the people involved. I've never, I've never done anything like that. I have no interest in doing it, but I can imagine, uh, especially from Kirk's fiction, where he does deal with this, uh, sometimes shockingly so, uh, you know, more than I would think, even after he became Catholic, I, the fact he was reading tarot and doing things like that. I think that he always had this unusual view of time and I think that came, and eternity. And I think that came from his family. I think that it's it's difficult for us to appreciate just how weird a lot of that spiritualism was that his that his family in Macosta had had been involved with with the the séances and the the uh, tarot reading and all of that and that that had to have had a, a profound impact on on his outlook. It absolutely did. And not only did it form his imagination, which, of course, then comes out in his fiction, but I really do, as I, I mentioned a moment ago, Alan, I really do think it shaped his vision of time and eternity. I think that he was never, I mean, I think it gave him an openness to things that probably most people would not have. Uh, and, and really, you know, if we wanted to, if we, if we want to be blunt, I, his, his family were witches. I mean, they were they were playing around with extremely, extremely dark stuff. And I realized that for their religion as a spiritualist, they saw this as very bright things. Uh, but there's no doubt. I mean, when Kirk talks about some of the things that they saw, uh, the dead that they saw or the stories that they were told from the dead, these are these are deeply disturbing things. And yet at the same time, they did, I think, shape his view of things uh, pretty strongly. Uh, you know, it's interesting though because I think that uh, sort of the, these uh, this concept of time that you're talking about, I think that that's also something that's compatible with kind of a Catholic liturgical right. way of thinking. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and that that's an odd connection there. I mean, maybe it's not that odd to someone on the outside, but from the inside of Christianity, that's weird. <laughs> so. Right, right, but it but it really does blend uh blend in his own thinking i think and and it and it's really of course in his fiction where you can see it but even in in just uh sort of that democracy of the dead idea that that permeates his vision of conservatism yeah, great point, Alan. that that's all of that kind of i feel like kind of feeds into or, or, right. or maybe it flows out of uh, kind of that that mindset and that thinking I think you're absolutely right. And I, I I will admit I'd not thought of that before. I think that makes perfect sense, especially with the idea of the democracy of the dead and these people counting in some way. You know, the other thing I would throw out there 
is when you asked what shaped Russell Kirk, uh, it wasn't, obviously it wasn't just the spiritualism, but you know, intellectually he became so interested during college in the ideas of Irving Babbitt and then of Paula Amar Moore. And from there, it seems, now it may have been prior to it, but we don't have the evidence to show it, but he became deeply interested in stoicism. And that stoicism always had a kind of spiritual element to it as well because of the idea of the logos and the natural law. So, and that fits obviously very well with his Christianity later on too, which is why I I, I would suggest that his formal conversion to the Catholic Church in 1964 was very personal to him and it was very important on a personal level, but it did not dramatically change him intellectually. Talking about the the Stoicism, he uh, once told me that that uh, Marcus Aurelius had had was one of the most influential uh, writers on his own thinking. But it was Marcus Aurelius and Sir Walter Scott were were what he said had shaped. What a great combination! Oh, it is. It's a it's 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 an amazing combination. But but you but but you can see both of those uh, in his thinking and in his approach. Well, and when he died, you know, if, if I remember the story correctly, he had the Ballad of the White Horse, the Bible, and Marcus Aurelius's meditations next to his bed. So, you know, that, I think that also the fact that he leaves this earth with those three books, uh, right there, that, that tells us something as well. Well, and when I was up there, he was rereading the Waverly novels, and I think that that was something that he did pretty regularly throughout his life, was, would essentially just be reading through at, at various times the, the Waverly novels. They were something that just were always informing his mind and his, his thinking. Yeah, and there I think is probably in many ways the influence of his mother and his grandfather, too, uh, because he started reading those when he was very young. But it was certainly something he was still doing when I was there. And I was right. there a couple of years prior uh, to his passing. Yeah, you would have been there, right, for the last few years. Right. He was. I was there really in, in what I would consider kind of his last active time. He was still right. doing some traveling and speaking, I don't think, as much as he had been doing. But it wasn't too, too long after I was gone that he uh, wasn't really able to do that, uh, yeah. do that anymore. I, I remember at the time, and I, as I said, I never met Dr. Kirk, but I had a friend who had done some events at Macosta, and I remember when he came back from one, I think it was in, in late 93, and he was so shocked at how much weight Dr. Kirk had lost. I think he was, he thought, this is getting close to the end. Mm-hmm. Let's touch a little bit more on the fiction, maybe a little bit more directly. Uh, we I alluded to it earlier. If 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 we're going to send someone to start reading fiction, where would you send them? I think you mentioned earlier the short stories is a good place uh, to go. Yeah, you know, obviously his most popular novel, which sold almost a million copies, was Old House of Fear. And, you know, it's fun. It's not, there's nothing profound to it. Uh, his other fiction is far, far deeper than that is. Um, but that's, a you know, if you want to just get some kind of basic ideas of Kirk on heroism and what he thinks about the supernatural, there's some good stuff in there. But I would really recommend for someone who wants to understand Kirk, I would recommend Ancestral Shadows, that great collection. It doesn't yes. have everything, but it has almost all of his short fiction. I think it's missing two pieces. Uh, but But for the most part, almost everything is there and all of his really supernatural stories are there. So that's, yeah, that's, that's a book that I tell people to get as well. It's, it's a great, it's a great collection of, it, uh, I, of I don't think it's in pieces. print anymore. Is it Alan? Uh, it may not be. I picked mine up at a used bookstore. Yeah, years ago, you, So I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, that book is now coming up on 20 years old. Oh, um, well, and, and it's <laughs> sad that it, it did not stay in print as long as it should have, uh, it, stunningly. So frankly, Right, it's it's a book that uh, that really ought to be in print, and and it's I think it's a good basic uh, volume for anybody to have. Certainly, because you, like, you do have you do have most of the stories. What do you think? What do you think his contribution from a fiction standpoint 
was? What what what's your assessment of him as a writer of fiction? Well, you know, even Stephen King praised Kirk early on in his career in his uh, book that he wrote on the history of horror fiction. He mentions Kirk. Uh, Kirk's book, especially The Princess, the compilation, The Princess of All Lands, as one of the most important pieces of literature written in basically the the, the third, fourth of uh, the 20th century, right, between about 1950 and 1975. And I, I think it's pretty clear that Kirk, with the old House of Fear, and especially the fact that he made so much money on that, and that book sold more than all of his other books combined in terms of numbers as well as money, he really does help open a market. There were other books that were coming out at the time that have, have maintained a, a higher reputation, like Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House, but Kirk, Kirk can hold his own in terms of Old House of Fear as a good horror novel. Uh, more adventure and romance than horror, but that combination, that gothic combination of horror and romance, you know, he's just very good at that. And I, I think that, that we would not have, I wouldn't go so far as to say there would be no Stephen King without Russell Kirk. But I do think that we would not have the kind of thriving literature that we have around Stephen King and others without Kirk's contribution to that. So that was really important, especially at the time that you've got science fiction coming to the fore and fantasy coming to the fore. It's important just for imagination. And you know, whether whether your listeners like horror as a genre or not, it's an important genre. It's, it's a bellwether because I think it tells us where kind of the idea of imagination within culture is. If everything is just realistic fiction, uh, and that that has its place. But if everything is just realism and fiction, yeah, we're probably in for a rather dreadful time. And I, I think the fact that you have Tolkien and that you have Bradbury and that you have Kirk, all of them doing extremely well in the 1960s, I think that was probably a good cultural marker. And of course, he had a very, uh, very good relationship with Bradbury. Absolutely. And, and he loved Tolkien. Right. Uh, I have tried to find out if uh, he ever if he did know Shirley Jackson or if he was familiar with her work. But uh, that book, The Haunting of Hill House, has so many Kirkianisms in it mm -hmm. that I'd be shocked if she wasn't at least somewhat familiar with his writing. You would think so. I mean, I, I would imagine uh, as popular as Old House of Fear was that, right. that it that it would have been that it would have been known. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. Let's shift gears a little bit uh, because I could go on talking about Dr. Kirk. Yeah, sure. <laughs> for a long time. I wanted, to talk, I wanted to talk about a couple of, of other things uh, that, you've, that you've written and are writing. One was, one was your collection Beyond Tenebrae. And uh, it, it's really a, a lot of it is kind of a, a collection of personality profiles of, yeah. of imaginative thinkers and writers. So Beyond Tenebrae was, uh, I had a great time writing that. And a lot of those were pieces that I had written for the imaginative conservative and for, uh, for Catholic World Reports, as well as for the American conservative. But with that book, I was really trying to look at the, the if there's an art behind it at all, the art that I was attempting was to try and show the conservative and liberal liberal arts idea of gratitude. That is, what do we owe those who gave to us? And so I was trying to bring together a number of different personalities from all different kinds of, of professions. So everyone from Ronald Reagan to Ray Bradbury uh, and to my grandparents, trying to figure out what these people had contributed to the world and at least how I see the world. So in a sense, it was kind of... Um, I had fun with it because it was kind of my conservative mind. <laughs> so right, right. I was I was going to say it's 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 similar to the conservative mind in that it it, it is sort of this survey of 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 different of different That's individuals. Right. There was one person that kind of caught my eye. I mean, several that were uh, that were intriguing, but uh, somebody that that I keep running across, but. I will confess, I have never really delved into, but sort of stands as this mysterious figure is T.E. Holm. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, That's not who uh, I thought you were going to say. Oh, <laughs> but uh, I, I was curious uh, about your thoughts about him, because you, you talk about how so many people, Elliot Dawson, uh, talk about the 
the debt that they had to him and and how he even though what he was 24 when he pa- when he was killed oh, in the war he was older than that i think he was uh, oh, okay. 34 okay yeah but that that he had had such a, a a profound intellectual impact at such a young age right Right. I, I really have become, uh, I mean, almost in a, in a very male kind of way, I've become infatuated with T.E. Holm. I've been very interested in what he had to say and the kinds of things that he was arguing about. And in large part, it was because I came across first T.S. Eliot saying, you know, this was the great mind of the 20th century. And had we been a Holmian kind of people, if, the, if Western civilization had gone the way of, of Holm rather than of his adversaries, you know, we could have avoided all the progressivism of the 20th century, or at least we could have put a very serious dent in it. And then you find people like Christopher Dawson who claim that he is the most original thinker of the 20th century. And, and absolutely, Alan, the fact that he died so young um, or at least mid thirties seems very young to me now. And uh, yes, I, you know, I agree with that. Yeah. You know, that's amazing that he had the kind of influence that he did. And you go back and you read what he wrote. I don't find his poetry very interesting at all. I find his theory of poetry absolutely fascinating. This idea that poetry is what connects essentially eternity and time. It's this where the sky and the, the horizon, where the sky and the land blend. So they can't really tell which is sky and which is the land, uh, that this is what poetry is supposed to do. It's supposed to blend the word and the idea so much that we're not really sure if we're, we're talking here just with language or if we're speaking in the language of ideas itself. Uh, yeah, I, I was absolutely fascinated with Holm. So again, not so much with what his ori- what he wrote that was original to him, but in his original thought on what others had been writing, I thought was just astounding. And I think there's probably a lot more, especially for someone who has a background in philosophy at the time of the progressive era and has a background in imagism and poetry, uh, someone meaning not me. Uh, I think there's a lot to get into that and to see really what the depths of home are. I can do it as someone who appreciates what he's doing, but I can't get into the kind of depth that someone who has those specialties really could. So if anything, I'm, you know, I want to keep his voice alive. And that was part of why I included him in Beyond Tenebrae. Maybe someone else can pick him up at some point and keep him moving. I, I don't know if you remember, Alan, but he does show up a couple of times in The Conservative Mind. And uh, I would never have noticed that until after I came across him in Dawson and in Elliot. But then when I went back and looked at the conservative mind, if I remember right, there are at least two references to him. And I'll, I'll have to go back and check. It's been a while since I've they're looked. They're very minor and passing by the way. Um, here's this figure, but at least he's in there. What, uh, where are his works available? Are they, I, I, are they in print? Yeah, you know, the last time that I know of, unless something has happened, the last time that I know of that they were in print was 1994. And there was a good edited collection by a woman, and I cannot remember her name right now. It's like Karen Skazarzi, um, but I can't remember her last name specifically. But she had an edited collection of his works that was very, very good. But that book is now outrageous to try and, I mean, I think it's several hundred dollars on AVE mm. uh, to get there. You can still on, if you go to AVE books, if you go to the used books, or if you go even to eBay and you type in speculations and further speculations by T.E. Holm, you can still find the actual 1924. And then again, I think a 1950s edition from the University of Minnesota of uh, not all of his works, but you'll have roughly probably 80 to 90% if you get those two books. So speculations from 1924 and then further speculations from the 50s. Gotcha. But yeah, nothing, I mean, as far as I know, there's nothing fresh by him, uh, nothing original by him that has remained in print. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, as my old professor Clyde Wilson used to say, no good book will stay in print for long. So. <laughs> You know, um, if if anybody wants speculations, I do have a PDF of it at my website, uh, just bradberzer.com. 
that I'm sure is illegal, but you know, if you want to go, (laughs) we won't tell, don't worry. No, not enough people will be listening to this to, to, uh, (laughs) well, I'm not sure who owns (laughs) copyright anymore. I mean, I doubt if anyone's out there going to hunt me down for that. So probably not. And you're, it's, it's unlikely that you're causing anyone a great loss of uh, revenue. (laughs) And I've had it up for probably five or six years. So uh, someone would have contacted me by now from the whole thing. I, I would think so. So let's talk about your new book. You're working on uh, a book on the Inklings right now. Is that right? That's what I've actually got two I'm working on. I'm writing a biography of Robert Nisbet, and then I've got okay. the group biography of the Inklings. And I'm on sabbatical at the moment, so I've been kind of, I kind of spend one week on one and the next week on the other, and then I keep going back and forth. Um, so I'm making progress, but it's been incremental progress on the, on each of those books. Well, then, then since you're doing the Nisbet, let's talk a little bit about Nisbet. Sure. Um, because he, um, I guess he's not as celebrated or as widely known, maybe, uh, as, certainly as Kirk and some others, but but really had a lot of impact. Yeah, you know, during his own time, so he was born in 1913 and he died in 96, uh, especially in the 60s and the 70s. He was a, a major public intellectual and probably as influential on public life as Kirk was at that time. But he is really faded. Um, since his death in 96, hardly anyone remembers Nisbet anymore. And, and yet he was kind of an icon for both the new left and the new right in the 1960s. Uh, everyone was trying to claim him. He was very, very seriously a conservative, uh, sometimes shockingly so. Going and reading him, I'm I'm amazed at what he got away with, uh, the kinds of comments that he makes, especially about the hippies and uh, the the protest movements of the '60s and the things that he's able to say in the New York Times and elsewhere is really really quite great. Uh, but it, yeah, he he has really been forgotten in a lot of ways, even though he was once a great public intellectual. Well, you're doing good work by uh, by going back and reviving some of these. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I, I love it actually. I mean, he's not nearly as quirky as Kirk is. Uh, Kirk, you just never run out of great stories. Nisbet was much more an academic, but there's still a, a lot of really interesting things that he did. Um, I think the kind of depth that he gave to academics at the time, and especially in the history of ideas, was really quite extraordinary. Do you do you have a publisher for that already? I do. Um, that's also with Steve Wren, but now with Notre Dame. Okay. So Steve is now the director at the University of Notre Dame Press. And uh, that, yeah, hopefully, I, mean, I, I would really like to have the manuscript done by next summer. Uh, whether I will or not is is open. Uh, I'm not sure because I really want to get the, the Inklings manuscript done by then too. So uh, a lot depends on how the spirit moves me and how much I'm actually able to accomplish with the keyboard. Well, so so talk to me about the inklings. What uh, what's your what your what is your time span on that? Yeah, so I am really trying to focus. There have been a couple of very good books on the inklings, and uh, but I think there's still a market for another one. And one of the reasons I say that is because almost all the books that have come out on the inklings have essentially focused on C.S. Lewis. And they focused on all of his friendships throughout his entire adult life. Whereas the Inklings were really a, a relatively small group, a set group of people that ranged between about 10 and 20. And uh, they met at very particular times. And they started meeting about 1931. And they had their final meeting in 1949. So I'm really trying to focus on that core time period of 31 to 49 to understand how they shaped each other. And there are a couple of inklings that people just don't talk about at all, like Lord David Cecil, who at the time, during that time period of 31 to 49, was just as well known as C.S. Lewis and far better than Tolkien was. Tolkien, of course, his reputation doesn't come into play until the 1960s, late 50s, and then the 1960s. Lewis's reputation really explodes during World War II. Uh, but Lord David Cecil had had the kind of a similar reputation to Lewis's throughout much of the 1930s. And he was really regarded much like we would regard David McCullough today. He was kind of the great biographer of of the time. And everyone looked to him. If you want a great biography, you have Lord David Cecil write it. Um, so one of those unsung inklings, no one talks about him. 
at all, but he was there for most of the meetings. Uh, he shows up in various ways in the fiction of the other Inklings, and I'm having a great time with that. Oh, it's, that sounds like fun. Who, who? Well, I guess Cecil's one. Who is? Who has been sort of an uh, an interesting discovery other than him? Yeah, you know, I, I really, and I won't say this was not my discovery, uh, but Owen Barfield is endlessly, endlessly fascinating. Uh, so to the point where he's so fascinating at times, my mind spins. And I mean that <laughs> maybe not literally, but there are moments when I read Barfield and I think, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm going to have to write about this guy. <laughs> you know, I think I've got 85% of his idea, but it's that final 15% I don't understand. That's really the critical part. <laughs> So, you know, there, there are moments when I read him and he, you know, he's an interesting, he, he's a heretic. Um, he thought that Jesus was higher than God, the father and God, the Holy spirit. But, you know, if you're going to have a heresy, that's kind of a fun one. That, yeah, I, I don't know that I've even heard of that heresy. Yeah. It, um, I mean, it, it is really wild. And, and his argument is essentially because Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was superior to God, the father. Um, you know, I, don't get me wrong. I don't buy it. I just, I find it fascinating. It's like, yeah, other heresies are so boring. Was, was this a heresy of his own creation or did other you know, people hold to this? Kind of an inverse Arianism, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, it's just, it's a fascinating thing. And, and, uh, the other person who was part of the Inklings who has very similar arguments was Charles Williams. Uh, mm -hmm. Charles Williams says, we never, ever give enough credence to God to, excuse me, to Christ the man. It's always Christ, a second person of the Trinity. And he, he makes the point that, you know, Catholics get it right when they talk about Mary as the mother of God, but Jesus was not just the son of God, he was the son of man. And that means that Mary's title should also be mother of man. Um, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that this is all right by any means, Alan, but I find it fascinating. <laughs> Oh, sure, sure. You know, yeah. like, okay. I mean, if I was going to fall into heresy, I could see this. You know, <laughs> you know God forbid that I fall into heresy. But it, well, it, I it, mean, it's interesting, of course, that they're around someone like what, like Lewis, who is who is right, you know, a, a noted Christian intellectual, it's so orthodox and so it, orthodox, right? And then to have these guys who are clearly pushing him and making him better as an orthodox Christian. Yeah, you know, and that's part of my argument is that we should be thankful that these guys were weird and that they had these odd sure. ideas. Well, sure. I mean, from from having that kind of uh, that kind of group, I, uh, that's that's only going to inspire more creativity of thought to have those kinds of those kinds of discussions and arguments and so forth going on. Right, and then you get again uh, to come back to Cecil. He was a, a high church Anglican. Uh, you would have been called a. a an Anglo-Catholic at the time, but was in the Anglican church. And he honestly believed, and he has a few essays about this, that if you're at all serious about believing in the word, believing in Christ, you better well know your grammar and your style, because when you write, you are consciously echoing the thoughts of God in the universe. And therefore, it's your duty as an Orthodox Christian to also be a good writer. <laughs> That's... That's, and, and that's, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> no, absolutely. Right. But you, it, it, I think, and there to take it back to Kirk too, there's that old stoic thing. Why would you ever do something if you don't do it to the best of your ability? Yeah. I love that. <laughs> and that's all over the inklings. You know, can you imagine Tolkien doing a, a B minus job on the Lord of the Rings? Uh, well, right. <laughs> right. Or Lewis with the screw tape letters. It's like, yeah, I'm just going to get this out. Right. I don't care about it. I mean, the, the, these guys put everything they had into their works. Well, right. And they and they held them up for critique to each other, which, of course, was right. uh, would have been a brutal thing to do. From what I understand, it was outrageously brutal. I mean, <laughs> these guys may have been good Christians, but they thought it was their duty to tear each other down. <laughs> yeah, well, you would have to go in with a lot of confidence in that oh kind of situation. God. You would have to have some serious thick skin. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so when you're 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 hoping to have the manuscript next year, when do you think those, yeah, that's uh, that book out may come out? Five books, and I, I'm embarrassed to tell you this. I've had the contract for that 
for close to 20 years. So when my Tolkien book came out, this was the next book that I signed with them. And I've been working on it that long, but it's only been in the last probably five years that I've really thrown myself into it. Um, I'd done a ton of research and I've got a 120 page outline that I've been oh, wow. working from that I wrote <laughs> about 20 years ago. Um, and then of course doing new reading as well. So much has come out from Tolkien, especially in that time. Uh, there right. were all kinds of things we had no idea about uh, because the estate hadn't released them 20 years ago. And uh, Tol- I mean, you, you could not, for example, the, the book that I wrote on Tolkien back in 2002, uh, that book is so dated now just because so much has come out and there's so much we know about him that we didn't know then. And that's in large part due to his son, Christopher, who passed away this year. Uh, but yeah, what a what an amazing, well, I, I'm as amazed by Christopher Tolkien as I am by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, both of them did their, did their best in different ways. So uh, Christopher will definitely be in the book. Christopher certainly seems like a, a towering figure in, in a lot of ways. I've not explored a lot with him, but just uh, what he was able to bring out as an editor and uh, as a custodian of his father's I, legacy is, is, is amazing. I agree. I agree. And some, I mean, he spent almost as much time on his father's work as his dad did. And mm-hmm. uh, that's just, you know, uh, what a labor and, I mean, in many ways, an un kind of a, a, a thankless labor, but one that we should thank him for in every way possible. Well, and you would have to have an incredible mind just to be able to, yeah, to do what he did, to understand what his father was doing enough to 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 make something out of of these notes and these manuscripts. Right, and you know, I mean, he lived almost a century. And to think that he never stopped working, right? I mean, he was basically working up until he died. So, you know, it's just, that's incredible. I mean, imagine if C.S. Lewis had made it past 1963, right? What if he had lived as long as Barfield? Barfield lived almost a century. He oh, really? died in the late 90s. You know, and they were the oh, same wow. age. Yeah, they were the same age. Lewis and Barfield were the same age. What if Barfield or Lewis had had another 30 years to write? Oh, that I mean, would have been incredible. Isn't it? It? I mean, just think about that for a moment. It's just stunning. It really is. So now I had heard a rumor that you might have been working on a project about Batman. Is that true? <laughs> it is true. It is true. Um, another contract that I'm, uh, I've got a lot of things I've got to get done here, uh, Alan, as you're, you're revealing. But yeah, that's through, <laughs> through uh, University of Kentucky Press, and I've got that about half written. Okay. So well, I, when you when you list all these projects, I just think of f- no, future podcast episodes. So, I- <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. That is it. There, there's nothing else. Well, you you had mentioned our our low culture interests, so that's. Uh, <laughs> How do you know I was including Batman in that? Well, well, maybe so. Maybe that's uh, maybe maybe it's more of a high culture. <laughs> no, it's high definitely culture. low culture. <laughs> low culture with some high culture moments yeah well i'm i'm definitely uh definitely interested in the batman project oh thanks alan that's great yeah it's um i've had to put that aside for a little bit but yeah i, I great i stuff. mean i i've i've been i've been reading and watching batman for uh, oh, well over four decades now so oh that's great i knew you and i had a common interest in it so, <laughs> no, yeah. i was a i was a young comic book collector uh starting you know, a little before 1980, I guess, I started buying comics and Batman was always one of my... Don't you have original copies of some Frank Miller? Uh, I do have, I do have the, uh, the original uh, Frank Miller set. And uh, I was, that, that was right during the time that I was, that I was buying comics. <laughs> that is so, so great. you know, so for me, it was like, oh, well, what's this? Well, these are pretty expensive, but... Yeah, <laughs> you right. know, Right. So did you get Dark Knight Returns? Is that what you had from Miller? Uh, yeah, I had. I, I mean, he I got all of the I got the Dark Knight Returns. And then he did he did the writing for year one. Right. Um, you have the original of that, too. Yeah, I do. Those are um, um, especially the Dark Knight Returns. Those are probably worth quite a bit, Alan. Not that yeah, you, I'll uh, may, maybe it'll uh, I can use it to fund uh, some large purchase or something. But it, I, I, <laughs> I have all actually have almost all my old comics. Uh, yeah, I do too. Uh, yeah. In their, I've got all in, long boxes. Yeah, I've got the long boxes. And yeah, they're they're, ba- they're bagged and backed. So yeah, <laughs> mine, mine too. Absolutely. 
Yep. <laughs> That's great. I'm glad to see here we are talking about these high culture things like Kirk. And then we're talking about bagging and boarding our car. That's, that's right. Well, you've, you've got to take care of them. <laughs> I, 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 can, I can see Russell in heaven disapproving, but that's okay. Uh, I, yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, when I, when uh, David Abner and I were at, at uh, Macosta, he was uh, my friend who came up and, and was an assistant yeah. with me during the time there. We would uh, We would go up and watch you know, bad TV in the upper part of the, of the Kirk house on the, a TV that had, that had survived uh, not being thrown out the window by Dr. Kirk. So that's hilarious. Absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. I remember so, but, right after Batman begins had come out, I was trying to explain to Annette why I thought it was one of the greatest movies ever made. And I, I mean, she was just horrified. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't see a dad as a, as a yeah. big Batman. What are you uh, talking about, Brad? <laughs> I may have convinced Gleaves Whitney. It was in the same conversation, but definitely did not convince Annette. Yeah, I think you might have more luck with Gleaves. <laughs> well, Brad, I appreciate you being on, and we could go on forever. Oh, fantastic but, uh, talking, Alan. And congratulations on your new podcast. Uh,